We are now in the ninth part of, of a sermon series on, on the renewal of work. One of the greatest tensions we face is the tension between faith and work. During some seasons, our faith and our work um, seem like two parallel lines that are completely disconnected. Sometimes it feels like our work and our faith are just so disconnected. It's like we are living two different lives. We all know that our faith in Christ is of absolute importance. We know that. But work, work is just so demanding, especially now in the lockdown season. So we, we face, we all face the tension, this tension in trying to give the utmost importance that our faith in Christ deserves while trying to also meet the very real demands that our work makes on us every day. And all of us do fail quite often in this. Now, what makes this tension even more challenging is that it's not just caused by external demands, but it is also caused by internal desires, perhaps even more so. Andrew in his interviews was kind of talking about that a little bit. And so quite often we do end up loving our careers more than we love Christ. And so often we do put Christ, put our careers ahead of Christ. And so this combination of external demands and internal desires is, um, uh, is, is very, very real. The second area of tension in, in regards to our faith and our work is around sharing our faith with colleagues at work. Of course, we, we don't have to be insensitive and forced and artificial in doing this. But we do hesitate and, and sometimes even miss out on having Christ conversations with our colleagues, even when it seems so appropriate, even when it seems like such a, such a natural thing to do. How can we remain faithful disciples of Christ even in a professional world? That's the question we're going to be engaging with today. How can we remain faithful disciples of Christ even in a professional world? Even for those of us who, who would consider ourselves to be committed followers of Christ, we do experience this tension of how much time to invest in church given the really high demands of our, of our careers. How, how do we balance the two? And that's a real question too. And so the Bible passage we're going to be turning to this morning for, for the answers to these questions is uh, Colossians, the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 22, all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. I've requested Kia to read the uh, portion for us. Um, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. 
Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to, um, how you ought to answer each person. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Um, thank you, Kya. This passage is, is calling us to drawing our attention to three things. First, we have one whole life, not many disconnected pieces. Second, the key to living this one whole life and then some practical steps. Those, those are three things we're going to be looking at. We have one whole life, not many disconnected pieces. The key to living this one whole life and, and, and a bunch of practical steps to do so. Let's dive into the first thing. We have one whole life and not many disconnected pieces. I don't know if you noticed, but in this passage, Paul is talking about career and mission in the same breath. There is no pause. There are no boundaries. There are no disclaimers. Paul is treating career and mission as one whole life. He talks about work and career in the first five verses in which he encourages bond servants to work sincerely with all their heart as working for Christ himself and not just for, for men. The sixth verse in the passage is about prayer and our relationship with God. And the seventh to the tenth verses is, are about mission, where Paul encourages the church in Colossae to pray for him. And he also encourages them to be alert and alive to every opportunity for mission. And he says all this in one breath. Our career and our mission is one whole life, as Paul sees it. Our career and our mission is one whole life as God sees it. God is fully invested in all of our lives. God is fully invested in the complete whole of our lives. Let me assure you this morning that God is not more interested in your church life than he is in your work life. Let me assure you this morning that God is not more interested in the 30, 40, or 60 minutes that you spend every day in the morning, hopefully, reading the Bible and praying. God is not more interested in those 30 minutes than he is in the remaining 8 to 12 to 14 to 16 hours uh, or more uh, that we spend working. In God's eyes, there is no hierarchy here. God sees our lives as one whole unit, not as disconnected pieces. At the end of the day, when Christ comes again, when we meet him face to face, he's not going to have a, a, a scorecard uh, which says, okay, faith life, work life, uh, you know, he doesn't have a separate section. He's going to judge us for our lives as a whole. He created the whole of us. 
He redeemed the whole of us. And he is sanctifying the whole of us. So, is this really true? Does God really care uh, for our work lives as much as he cares for our mission lives? Does God really care for our work lives as much as he cares for our church lives? To answer the question, we've got to go back to the book of Genesis like we've been doing so often in this sermon series. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them a creation mandate. We've been looking at this. He called them to be fruitful and to multiply. He called them to reign over all the earth. He called them to work the land, to, to, to make his creation flourish even more, as Andrew pointed out, helped us see in the interview this morning. This was the call to work. So you see, salvation was not the purpose of creation. There was no need for salvation at the point of creation. Family, work, taking care of God's creation, and of course, worshipping God was the creation purpose. But Adam and Eve sinned, and, and the world was cursed as a result of their sin. Christ came to redeem us. He, he saved us. And he called us to share the good news of grace to others. This is the redemption mandate. So there are two mandates, the creation mandate and the redemption mandate. And a couple of quick observations on, on these two mandates. First, the redemption mandate, that is mission, does not make the creation mandate, which is work, redundant. The redemption mandate does not make the creation mandate redundant. Yes, we have to be on mission. Yes, it is important. Yes, it is urgent. But this does not mean that we no longer have the original call of creation upon us. The creation mandate and the redemption mandate are both equally important in God's eyes. God is equally invested both in the creation mandate and in the redemption mandate. From God's perspective, the creation mandate and the redemption mandate are not two separate and disconnected mandates, but both are one continuum in God's grand and unfolding redemption story. One day when Christ comes again, when he redeems the broken world, the redemption mandate will be completed. Mission will be finished. But the creation mandate will continue for all of eternity. I think it was John Piper who said this. He said, mission will end someday, but worship will continue for all of eternity. And this is one of the central themes in the book of Colossians that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. And the passage we are looking at is from chapter 3 and 4, but Paul unpacks the truth that we've been talking about extremely well in chapter 1. Excuse me. Let me read a couple of verses from chapter 1 for us. I'm reading verses 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is Christ Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
All things were created through him and for him. That's the first thing. All things were created by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. Now look at the next verse that I want to draw our attention to. That's verses 19 and 20 in chapter 1. For in him, that's Christ again, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All of creation, everything in creation, were created by him, including the dog that's barking in the background. And all things were, and everything in creation was redeemed by him. So the human soul and the human spirit and the human body were created by Christ and they were redeemed by Christ. And work and everything else which is created and instituted by Christ was also redeemed by Christ. God created everything. Not just us, but even our call to work. It was his idea. God created everything. Everything was broken by the fall and God redeemed everything. God redeemed, Christ redeemed our whole being and Christ redeemed, also redeemed the work we were created for. And so God is fully and equally invested in all of our beings and he's fully and equally invested in all aspects of our life. God gave us one whole life, not many disconnected pieces, and he's invested in the entire whole of our lives. And that brings us to the second thing that this passage is drawing our attention to, the key to living one whole life, the key to living one whole life. How do we learn to hold it all together as one whole life and not as separate and disconnected pieces? How do we move away from our tendency to compartmentalize things? How do we learn to stop shutting God out of our consciousness in the busyness of our careers and in the demands of the work that we are called to do? How do we grow out of this confusion of, of how much time should I invest in church and how much time should I invest in my career or my personal time with God? How do, how do I get the balance? How do we answer this question? The answer is right here in the passage we are looking at. Our chapter 3, verse 24, and chapter 4, verse 5. First, I want us to note how Paul encourages us to work. How is Paul calling us to work? That's there in verse 24, chapter 3. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So Paul is encouraging us to work as we are working for our Lord Christ. And he's calling us to work with our eternal inheritance as a primary motivation, not merely earthly salary. But when do we receive this inheritance? We receive it. We receive the full inheritance only when Christ comes again and leads us into eternal life with him. That's a curious. Now let's look at how Paul encourages us to be on mission. That's chapter 4, verse 5 in the passage we just read. 
walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. That phrase, making the best use of time, clearly suggests that time is running out. It's supposed to bring in a sense of urgency to our mission. But when does the time finally run out? When does the clock stop ticking? The clock stop, stops ticking when Christ comes again and leads us into eternal life with him. Do you see the connection here? Paul is calling us to pursue our careers with eternity in mind. He's calling us to work with eternity in mind. And Paul is also encouraging us to be on mission with eternity in mind. And this is the real key to living one whole life that is totally devoted to Christ Jesus. To live here and now with our hearts set on eternity when Christ comes again. This is the key. When we live life with an eternal perspective, with an expectation of Christ coming back, everything falls into its proper place. It is only when we live with an eternal perspective that we can get the whole picture and, and can therefore live one whole life. If we do not develop an eternal perspective, and if we live entirely in the temporary here and now, a few little pieces is all we can see. And even these two few little pieces are not going to fit together because we are not going to be able to see the complete picture. Things will never add up fully unless we take an eternal perspective. Think of the lockdown. Unless we take a truly eternal perspective, the brokenness of the present world doesn't make any sense. Have you seen a mountain climber prepare for a tough summit? I, I guess we've all seen a doc, documentary about some, someone you know, making it to a summit at, at some point of time or the other. Uh, have you seen how he puts his kits together? his climbing kit. I'm going to have a picture come up. And and this is what the kit looks like just before he packs it for a climb. You know, every every seasoned, experienced climber, his his kit is going to look look something like this. Does, Does any of this make any sense to you? Unless you're an experienced climber. Do these pieces add up to you? Uh, you and I, if we are not experienced climbers, we're going to look, we're going to feel flustered just looking at all this stuff. You're not going to do what, know what to do with all this. But an experienced mountaineer will know when and where and how each of these pieces fits into the long and hard climb ahead of him. They all make sense because he knows where each piece fits in the climb. There's so many different pieces, but each of them are just tools. They're all important, yes, but none of them are the prize. The prize is making it to the peak. And the climber knows how each piece fits in his journey to the summit. This is what Paul is talking about here. 
So each piece in the light of our journey, see each piece of your lives in the light of your journey to eternity and the light of eternity itself. And then we will learn to live the one whole life. When we see things in the light of eternity, every piece of our life falls into place. They blend well together. They flow well together. When we see our life in the light of eternity, we are not going to be pulled in 10 different directions. We're not going to feel confused about what to prioritize. We're not going to be perplexed by life. We will have the right focus and we will have the stillness of heart to hold that focus. When we start seeing our lives in the light of eternity, we will stop making this distinction between our professional lives and our lives as disciples of Christ Jesus. It will all become one journey, one summit, one Christ, one prize, Christ himself. The journey of a bride waiting for her bridegroom. When we learn to see our lives in the life of eternity, it all becomes, everything becomes all about giving our whole selves back to the one who redeemed us. I'm hoping you've been engaging with the sermon at least a little bit. You probably were able to relate to to the tension that I put in faith and work that I was talking about earlier uh, maybe the mountaineering and analogy kind of kind of connected. Maybe through your hearts and and uh, hopefully you, you, you're engaging just a little bit. But I have to admit that the sermon at this point in time is still in the abstract idea zone. Uh, we need to land this plane now into into practical life. Uh, we need to bring some application based on these biblical truths we've talked about, and, and that's exactly what I want to do with the last point. Uh, a few practical steps. Um, And I want to draw out three practical steps, three very simple and practical ways in which we can remind ourselves to to live this biblical truth out. First, remember that you will last all eternity. You're not going to last 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years. Remember you are going to last all eternity. That changes everything. Think about it. You are going to last all eternity. How many marathoners have you seen start the marathon at a sprint? Or as they're running along the marathon at marathon pace, How many of them break into a sprint just because somebody has overtaken them? No, they run the race at their pace. They pace themselves well for the entire course. Similarly, when we start seeing life in the light of eternity, everything changes. Our sense of time changes. What is important and what is not, that changes. What to prioritize 
what not to prioritize, that changes. How happy to be when something good happens changes in the light of eternity. How sad to be when something bad happens changes in the light of eternity. How long you want to sulk if the increments aren't good enough changes in the light of eternity. Or how long you want to sulk after you fight with your spouse it changes in the light of eternity. Everything changes when we live life in the light of eternity. So the next time you feel flustered or confused or it seems like life has beaten you, take a deep breath. Think of Christ who died and rose again and remind yourself, I have an eternity to spend with Christ. Those can be very powerful words in the midst of a crisis, personal or professional. I have an eternity to spend with Christ. Eternity changes things here and now. That's the first step. Remember, you will last all eternity. The second practical tip that's, that I think is going to be really helpful in living lives in, in the light of eternity is this, cultivate a vivid gospel imagination. Cultivate it. It's of course spirit-led, but we also partner. We cultivate it. Cultivate a vivid gospel imagination. I'm reminded of this um, 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 incident that happened in the life of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. Uh, Steve Jobs was trying to uh, hire Joe Scully. At that point in time, uh, uh, Apple was, was just starting off. It was just one of those startups. It wasn't as popular as, as it is now. And Joe Scully, on the other hand, was working with Pepsi, which is one of the largest, most successful multinationals. And uh, Steve Jobs tried hiring Joe Scully again and again and again. And Joe Scully, Scully kept saying, no, no, no. And he offered a lot more money. He offered stock options. Nothing worked. Finally, Steve Jobs, Jobs went to Scully and he said, do you want to sell, spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want to do something that will change the world? And, and that, that proposition from Steve Jobs changed Scully's mind. Because you see, Scully's perspective changed when he had, when he gained the imagination that Steve Jobs had. We are all creatures of imagination. I don't know if you remember at the Good Friday service, uh, when Aji led her in the time of prayer, she, she told us that, that worry is imagination. Because worrying today about what's going to happen tomorrow is imagining something that has not already happened. So you need, if you do not have the power of imagination, you are incapable of worrying. Similarly, if we do not have the power of imagination, we are incapable of hope. The more we imagine something, the more it captivates our hearts, both good and bad. The more we worry about something that's going to happen, the more it grips and captivates our heart. The more we hope about something that's good that's going to happen, the more it captivates our hearts. The more we imagine something, the more immediate it becomes. 
the more we imagine eternity with Christ, the more immediate eternity with Christ becomes in our hearts. But our imagination of eternity has to be biblically faithful. And for our imagination of eternity to be biblically faithful, we've got to spend time reading and, and praying through God's word. If we don't do that, if, we, if you're not rooted in God's word and we begin to imagine eternity, it, then for men, it'll probably look like you know, unlimited wine and unlimited women in hell. That's not what it's all about. Our imagination, we need to cultivate a vivid gospel imagination, but our imagination needs to be grounded, needs to flow from God's word. We need to cultivate a vivid gospel imagination. That's the second practical tip that I wanted to leave with us. The third practical tip. Make all your decisions around the one true absolute. Work, our careers, tries to become that one true absolute quite often. And so many times I've heard people say, no, this is not possible because my work is coming in the way. Uh, or I, I have work, so I can't do this. Uh, I have work, I can't take care of my children. I have work, I can't give more time to children. I have work, I can't do this. I have... We allow our work to subconsciously become that one true absolute. It is not. Nothing should replace Christ as the one true absolute. For some of us, it can be money. That can become the one true absolute. For some of us, it can be comfort. That can be the one true absolute. Nothing should replace Christ as the one true absolute. Scream, test, wet every single decision of yours through that one true absolute. It has got to be Christ. So to sum up those three tips, first, Remember that you will last all eternity. Second, cultivate a vivid gospel imagination. Third, make all your decisions around the one true absolute. I want to close drawing our attention uh, to verse 2 in chapter 4 of Colossians in the passage we read this morning. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with giving, with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. What does the word, what does the phrase to be watchful in prayer really mean? It wasn't just Paul that called us to be watchful, to watch and pray. Jesus did it too. Jesus called his disciples to watch and pray. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 38. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And this was just before Jesus was arrested and crucified. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point 
of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Watch and pray. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus called his disciples to keep watch with him and to share the sorrow with him. That was before the cross. Before the cross, watch and pray to the disciples of Jesus meant watch and share the sorrow of Christ. But that was before the cross. That was before the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. That was before the Son of God, God himself, laid down his life as a sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of men. But we are now on the other side of the cross. On the other side of the cross, we are called to keep watch, to share the joy of Christ in his return, not in his sorrow. The disciples were called to watch and share the sorrow of Christ because Christ was going to be crucified. But Christ is now already crucified and risen and ascended. And he is waiting to come back to have his bride, to be with us, to, to set right the world once all over again, to make it beautiful all over again. And so on this side of the cross, we are not watching for the death of Jesus, but we are watching for the second coming of Jesus. We, the bride, are watching with thrilling, expectant joy and hope for our bridegroom to come. We watch sharing the joy that Christ is experiencing because he knows he's going to come back and have us as his bride. Watching in prayer for us is watching in joy. Watching in prayer for us is living in the light of eternity. Watch for Jesus to come back again and live your life and your careers and everything else on that watching. Be alert. Be constantly alive, constantly remembering that Christ is going to come and that will bring joy to our hearts. The same passage in Matthew 26, let me read one more verse as I close. Watch and pray, Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. On this side of the cross, to watch and pray, to watch for the joy to come is what is going to give us strength to overcome temptation. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. When we watch for Christ to come again, when we watch with joy and pray, that joy is going to be our strength against every temptation because everything else is going to lose its allure in the light of the grandeur and the joy and, and, and the thrill of seeing Christ face to face. When we live life in the light of eternity, everything changes. Everything changes. Let us pray. Father, we worship you, Lord. And Lord, I, we confess, I repent that my heart has become so numb to eternity. And I cry out to you, we cry out to you, help us, Lord. Help us, help us to live in the light of eternity. Help us to live in the light of eternal life with Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.